Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my time to show you can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. It's politics without the boring bits. Heading into party conference season, we are going to be at the Lib Dem conference in Bournemouth. We're going to be at the Tory conference in Manchester. We're going to be at the Labour conference in Liverpool. And then we're off to the Cheltenham Literature Festival as well, where you can come and see us live. If you want to come and see us doing the show live on stage at the Cheltenham Literature Festival, just go online to their website, cheltenhamfestivals.com. Search Matt Shirley, will probably bring it up. We are doing the Times Radio debates live on stage talking about what year is it? Which political year are we in? Is it 97, 92, 74, I don't know, 18, 10? So if you want to come out, uh, get your tickets. It'd be lovely to see you there. Right, coming up on today's episode then, no PMQs today because they're in conference recess, even though there's not a conference this week. But still plenty of politics around. Rishi Sunak making a big speech on his net zero targets and climate change and all of that. So instead of PMQs unpacked, we've got PMQs, questions in the afternoon with Patrick Maguire answering your, and Kate McCann, answering your questions about what's going on in politics right now. Loads to talk about. Really, really good chat with them coming up on the podcast. But first, as we always do on a Wednesday, it's time for these two. The Columnists with Alibert, Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton on Times Radio. Yes, and they're both here. They're both here. Alice Thompson's here. Morning. Robert Crampton's here. Morning. What are you snickering about? We love our Alibert. name. Alibert. Yeah, still, still, yeah, still, still, makes, me, still makes me laugh, yeah. Well, it's been about three, two yeah, years, two, three I years. It keeps getting better with, better with age. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What were you before? Web cramp. Because you had a brief spell, didn't you, with Esther? Crampon. Esther. I think we were crampon, we were crampon. which was pretty bad. But no, you, but you, a... you had a woman before Alice, didn't you? When we first yes. started. Yeah, I you was... You were with... Uh, I had a fling Esther with, Weber. Uh, with Esther. And then yeah. Esther decamped, yeah. yeah. They all leave in the end, don't they? Yeah, web cramp. Web cramp. Which is quite rather good. quite good, yeah. Yeah. Alibert, anyway, here we are. Uh, so, uh, are you abandoning your plans to get a new boiler and a new car, Alice? 
I actually have had the same Volvo for 20 years. And I'm not, I think the reason I'm green is because I haven't got rid of any cars. So I think the whole point is to keep your car for as long as you possibly can. And I do that with everything. So I keep the washing Presumably machine. Presumably you're not driving, driving that uh, into London with a uh, Volvo. Well, no, we don't. I, in London, I just take the tube, mm. I have to say. I'm, like, I'm quite uh, not using the car person. Uh, I prefer to use something really old and then keep going, even though it may, in some ways, look appalling. And I feel it's the same, actually, with the boilers and things. That <laughs> if we keep changing everything around, we're going to have to get rid of it all. And then just, there'll be mountains and mountains of cars. And it's like the same with phones every time you get a new phone. Yeah. And I just hate all that rubbish. So I'm more worried about rubbish, basically than I am about getting an electric car. So you're happy with what you're saying, putting everything off? Well, in some ways I am. I do feel sorry for the car manufacturers because you've got to have a sort of make a decision and stick with it. Otherwise, it's impossible for them. Because it's a double-edged thing, isn't it? So Rishi Sunak's decision to delay the... Uh, uh, we think. We don't mm. actually know yet because it's all sort of leaked and then he put out a peculiar statement last night. Um, it's a double-edged thing. The, the, the literal thing of is the ban on new petrol and diesel cars going from 2030 to 2035. But it's what it does generally to... Cat and business and industry mm. rely on any, anything, any target or deadline set. No, it was hard, but it was inevitable, wasn't it? I think the charging infrastructure is just not there for the for uh, electric to come in uh, in, in, entirely new electric to come in in twenty thirty. But it's only, uh, but it's not. Everyone will still be able to have a petrol and diesel car. Yes, they will. Yeah, but it's new cars. Yeah, yeah. But the the shift would be too much. Yeah, uh, because the the the, um, the infrastructure for charging yeah. them up is not there. I've got hybrid. Uh, which, uh, but we never charge it. It seems to charge itself, so it doesn't very. Yeah, do, I've got one like that. It doesn't do very much on the electric. It's yeah. a, it seems a bit of a cheat, to be honest, because it seems it's pretty much mostly petrol. But it, for urban driving, yeah, it does a bit of electric. But I can go. I living in London. Uh, I mean, I know people in the countryside uh, get fed up hearing this because their public transport is appalling. But yeah. the public transport in London is good. Yeah, I can go weeks, if not months, without getting in a car and. The, the object of public policy should be that should, to be the case for yeah more people who don't live in London. Also, mm -hmm. car sharing. So that you know, I take a zip car. If I really need one, I just take yeah. a car share, uh, which is kind of dangerous because you've never been in it before, and I'm not great at driving. I have to say, so yeah. there was a moment when you think, oh. But I would say that's that's what we should be heading for, rather than everyone buying more and more cars, which is what's going to happen. But then the politics of this is interesting. Is that why, why is he choosing to do? And it's you know, and it's the, the the dividing line that's just drawing through the Conservative Party. You've got Mark Jenkinson on one side saying this is a great thing to do. My voters will love yeah. this, um, without the necessarily fully understanding what was happening. It wasn't saying you can't drive your petrol car after twenty thirty. It was just saying you couldn't buy a brand new one after twenty thirty. And guess... what does what does that achieve by saying twenty thirty five? Does it just mean we just delay five years starting the process of beefing up the infrastructure? I think it's. Uh... It's smart. Po I mean, he shouldn't really be playing politics with the planet's future, but it's smart politics because it skews. The, he saw what happened with the Labour Party in the, with the Ulers in the uh, Uxbridge by-election, and it's obviously something they think they calculate they can uh, make hay. With and I think they assume on. that the younger generation aren't going to vote for them anymore. Yeah. So you know, the young aren't going to vote, yeah. on, and they they are the ones that are really exercised by green yeah. issues and really care and really mind about them so much. And the old generation do, but at the same time, I think they're quite worried about their finances yeah. and they're worried about the boiler and and also they are worried about waste. I think I but think they're you, more likely yeah. to talk about waste than anything else. If you look at the voters who got upset about Ulers, if they're the same sort of people who are getting upset mm -hmm. about boilers and uh, petrol cars, then that's that's quite smart politics from the Conservative point of view because that's uh you know out of london uh, west midland suburbs south yeah, Lancashire, yeah, yeah. those sort of seats that they think maybe we could possibly hang on to uh if we get the right issue and yeah. this might be it which is which is which is not ideal given the 
given the sort of cataclysmic nature of the, the and as several people pointed out, I mean, I mean, just spoke to Mark Mark Jenkinson, who was a, in a red wall uh, seat, and he was saying, you know, we're only aligning if we move twenty thirty five, we're just aligning ourselves with the EU. Mm. Several people pointing out the deep deep irony of Brexiteers yes. now saying, yes. Yeah. Instead of instead of being world leaders, what we should just do is just go along with the EU. Yeah. I think I that think... is the problem that we were world leaders. So there was a sense of that, and I think that is good. I think that gives you a sense yeah. that, that we're leading. So and then we've got all the technology coming in, and yeah. so and I think that I think we aren't there anymore. And I think that Rishi Sunak has given that up. And, and I think that is sad. Yeah. And there's going to have to be some pain if you're shifting you're shifting away from fossil fuels to renewables. There's a massive, massive change. There's going to have to be some pain at some point, isn't there? There's going to have to be some people. You know, some you're going to, we have to. Be, Paying for it, yeah, yeah. and uh, so a shift in uh, in in lifestyles and, and and habits. But also, you want to look at transport. So their transport policy mm. should be integrated. So they should be integrated with a better transport policy. So you, know, you look at the trains at the moment. You look at the bus system. That's what we need. Is you need a way. Not saying you need to buy an electric mm. car, but actually, you're not going to need a car in twenty years' time because we're going to have sorted. But this. you are if you live. I mean, you, I mean, I've been shocked whenever I go into uh, the countryside. I'm absolutely shocked at the uh, the lack of. There are no buses, aren't there? Yeah, there are buses. I, I, I hadn't realised that rural bus service is just basically all, given up. Yeah, they have, yeah. 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 I mean, even where, even where I live, which was, you yeah. know, it was not the wilds, it's no. just in Hampshire, uh, we have got a train station, which is why we live there. But yeah. when we first moved there, there was definitely a bus service. You know, I could yeah. get the, but I remember getting the bus to hospital one day or, you know, to the uh-huh. doctor or whatever. And now, to, I mean, to do that, yeah. I mean, from what it's basically from one town to another, it would take you most of the day and cost yeah. you an absolute fortune. Yes. Um, and I get, and, and I, I get the bus every well, every day, twice a day, without thinking yeah, about yeah. it, and the tube probably two or three times a week. Yeah, but they spend, over, if you over, look at the West Country, they're spending yeah. 100 quid less per person on their yeah. transport. They only spend 450 yeah. quid in London, but yeah, they're spending yeah. 100. You know, they're, they're not getting anything put into their infrastructure, yeah. and I think that is wrong. I think they need to have more money But that actually may be a massive push to electrify cars mm. in, the, in rural areas. Getting charging points into villages mm. and post offices, pub car parks. But this, the problem is that at the moment, this government and this country doesn't seem capable of a massive push about anything, no. does it? And instead of having about whether or not to cancel yeah. a bit of the yeah. train line that they've been in the middle yeah. of building. That, that's the, well, that's what underlies a lot of this yeah. stuff. I think we do. We this very kind of pessimistic mood at the moment, both in both in government and in and in the private sector. I think as well. You know, just this sort of oh, you know, can't really achieve anything. It's that sort of that, that sense that. We had it sort of pre-Olympics, and then the Olympics. We thought, oh, we can do stuff after all, yeah. and then it's been sort of it's been down. And everything has to be short term. So there's no <laughs> sense of being able to do anything long term anymore no. because you're waiting for another election. You're just like, I feel like everyone's on hold for the next year, really. Yeah. Well, I thought that was amazing in the in the statement that Rishi Sunak put out slightly weirdly last night, where he talked about how people want. Well, first of all, he said people want real change. And I thought. It's a statement from <laughs> Keir Starmer. Yeah. Um, where is his st- statement? And then he does say, doesn't he? I mean, he talks I know, about. I the know fact. people are frustrated with politics and want real change, while announcing a real change from a policy that he supported when it was announced a year ago. Yeah. Our political system rewards short-term decision making that is holding our country back. Yeah. But that's exactly what he's been doing, and he's yeah. now doing again and again. Yeah. I don't, I don't understand how delaying the thing is a. Yeah. You know, actually, if they got on with it when it was announced three years ago rather than having the massive psychodramas of the Tory yeah. party. We might be in a better place with infrastructure now so to meet yeah. the 2030 target. Yeah, maybe so. Um, but anyway, there we are. Uh, well, we'll see what happens. We don't actually quite know at this point, uh, sitting here right now, when Rishi Sunak's speech is going to be. It was supposed to be Friday, and I think they're having a discussion about whether or not to rush it out now. Make it even more short term. Mm, yeah. Well, it's like the reshuffle, mm-hmm. but they keep having a reshuffle and we haven't had it yet. Uh... Do we not have the key start? Oh, we had the... Yeah, yeah. with yeah. the Ben Wallace. Ben Wallace. Yeah, we just had Ben Wallace and nothing else. Yeah, and then Deanna Davidson went this week. Mm. Yeah. 
um, to be yeah to be replaced. Uh, well, let's stick with Rishi Sunak, but let's take a slightly lighter, lighter <laughs> look at uh, sideways glance. Yeah, yeah Rishi Sunak's um, cultural taste. Cultural taste, yeah. including this. Yeah, hit me, baby, one more time. Apparently, he's a big fan of Britney Spears, uh, Britpop, uh, and his door. Um, and Barbie. Um, Billy, Billy Joel. No, 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 you're. Oh, that's your Billy Joel. Yeah, yeah. I'm misreading this. <laughs> yeah, you're speed, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. speed reading. I'm speed reading. Yes, and he's not. But he's not a fan of Britpop either. He's I'm not a fan of Britpop. That's you. That. This is you. No, yes, go yeah. on, shall I explain? Yeah, go on then, you explain what we're talking about. Rishi Sunak apparently knows all the words to Baby One More Time by Britney Spears, which was a hit in 1998 when he was 18. I find it unlikely that, when that was when he was head boy at Winchester College, I find it unlikely he was a Britney fan then. So I wrote a column saying I think that maybe that's his wife, and then some of his other choices look suspiciously like those, they might have come from his two daughters. Uh, Emily in Paris, he says he loves Emily in Paris, he loves Bridgerton, he likes Nando's. He likes chocolate. We all know he likes Coca-Cola. Yeah. He's basically got the taste of a sort of preteen girl. <laughs> uh, now, and, I, I, in his defence... Which is fine, and I have... So have I in many, in, in many respects. I, I, I also like Emily in Paris. He's a bit older than me, but I, yeah. think, I think Hit Me Baby One More Time was so massive yeah. he'd have definitely been singing along to that. Fair in enough. The okay, we'll give him that. Of Universe. Winchester. Yeah. And then Oxford. Okay, we'll give him that. Fine. I don't think he's necessarily making this up. And and, and even if he's getting his... Even if it is his, uh, his family, his daughters and his wife who were kind of feeding him this diet, or you know, then that's fine. I mean, that's, I that's what happens to a lot of us. I think it's the thing that normalises him, isn't it? That you actually think he may have sat down and watched Emily in Paris. Yeah, I mean, he just... He, he does seem to have very middle-brow taste. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, fair enough. Uh... Quite adolescent tastes as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know... But, but aligned with quite expensive... T- you know, the, the aligned with thing. quite expensive tastes. His expensive parters, yeah. but then his, you know, his weird yeah. Coke, sort of middle-of-the-road... Yeah. You know, TV show choices. Have yes. you seen the story about Emily in Paris? Have you watched Emily yeah, in Paris? Yeah, you can go yeah. and see. Can't you, go where to, she you went? Go to Paris. I was going to ask. Perhaps you yeah. can't go to Paris and We could go together, Robert. That's that a cracking idea. Mission. What a great idea. There we are. I love Emily in Paris, mm. and I discovered it all by myself. It wasn't my daughter or my wife who said, let's watch Emily in Paris, although it's seen as a kind of, as a kind of female yeah. uh, generalisation, you know, female kind of show. Because uh, it's sort of fashion, Instagram, and all the rest of it. But I think it's a great show. I've written about it many times, including on the uh, August uh, comment pages of this paper. And so that, I don't have a problem with Rishi liking Emily in Paris. News doesn't start. I just found out this morning the new season doesn't start until December, sadly. Everyone's very nice to each other, that's the thing. Didn't you yeah. two do and with it? Good, good well, we did a feature went... 25 years ago on going to Paris. 30, I think we are 30, the Alice. obvious people to go back and do Going back Paris. and do an Emily in Paris. You know, it was 30. Is it 30? 30 years ago? It's 1993. Oh, we both yeah. smoked. I know that because I write everything down. The whole, the whole so, piece. I'm really cross with Robert for writing everything down. So you're going to have to tell me the days when we're in Paris and what, what happened. What do you mean you write everything down? I wrote a column this morning. You can't, you can't keep up with my, my mm. output. You're, you're and another one, this, another one this morning oh, about, yes. yeah, about yeah, yeah, yeah. writing everything down because tracking, apparently, as the younger generation called it, is now falling out of favour. And I'm saying, well, I've always done this and I'll continue to do it. Yeah, but, and uh, no, no, he's not we, tracking. He's literally every single step he takes. He's like in a kind of Bridget Jones diary where he puts down what he's eaten, how much he mm. weighs, every step he's taken. Every step I take. Where, where do you write I'll, it? I'll down? be watching me. Have you got a little book. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've got a big book actually. It's a diary. Big book. Yeah, 
Yeah, old school diary. Yeah, paper and paper and pen. So in a hundred yeah. years' time, it's all going to be about Robert. They're going to see yeah. Robert, and he's going to be because no, my kids are going to do some death cleaning and uh, <laughs> my my big books as well as my yeah. cuttings books, which I zealously maintain will all be. I'm going to tell the kids to get I mean, rid of it. Still, they'll be in landfill. Your cuttings books must be enormous the amount of stuff yeah. you churn out. Yeah, they're quite considerable. Oh, but I have got a pile of all of my columns uh, in the spare room. Right. What no, I've got, these, I've got these. I've got these old school. They used to get these old school, uh, you know, big books. black books. Yeah, black books. Yeah, we've got yeah. our black books. We could go back. So the only yeah. way we're going to get our Paris article is the, if we go back to our black books. Yeah, yeah, I'll have it somewhere. All right, I could lay my hands on it. Which would use a print instantly. stick and put them in. Yeah, I still do. Mm. Yeah, the way, I don't, I don't, although they're quite hard to come by now <laughs> because there's specialist bookbinders who do them. And so I'm actually, if there are any specialist bookbinders well, listening, I would actually like some more cuttings books. When please. I first started in the lobby, there was someone who worked for the Mail whose job was mainly uh, big, I think they were maroon-bound oh, yeah. things. Oh, yeah, yeah. And just started the morning every day with a big thing of squirty glue. Yeah. Stinking the office out. Yeah. Gluing yeah. things in into books that nobody then ever looked at because you yeah. could just look it up online. Yeah, oh, that's the Cuttings Library. The cuttings library yeah, that's yeah. the that's the end of the Cuttings Library. Yeah, we used to, we used to have one when in Wapping. You'd go over the road and there'd be this sort of cavernous... Files weren't there? Do you remember those those yeah. library stacks that moved? You had envelopes with all yeah, yeah, yeah. the articles yeah, with, with in yellow and cuttings in. Yeah, yeah. And the guys there were like always that. resentful because they knew they were basically their job was over essentially, yeah. and so they were always yeah. But they always won the quizzes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. But they, no, this is my own. But my own. I only stick my own. I'm stick my own stuff in. It's only stone stuff. Yeah. But you yeah. can stick my stuff in. For future generations. Okay. Yeah, for future generations where actually it's going to be in landfill <laughs> within days. I mean, my you, body won't be cold and my kids will have put your it, put, put your it in Your memoirs skip. are just there already, aren't they? Ready to go. Yeah, but they're not in very kind of readable form because they're in these enormous, <laughs> enormous kind of... But yes, I mean, I suppose they even are. if you can't face going through yeah. them, then there's... Exactly. There's not like... <laughs> who, could face, who could possibly face reading them? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, something to do later in life. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> now, Alice, you've been writing about the art of ageing well. Uh, especially because there were some figures out this week about the number of people even living to over 100 has gone up massively. So how should we be ageing better? So I was talking about Sweden, mm. where they do something called death cleaning, which sounds dreadful. <laughs> sounds like there are two worse things, which is sort of death and cleaning, which to me are. <laughs> but um, actually, it's a really good idea. And they, what they do is when you finish work at about 60, 65, you kind of take a year out and you stop and you think and you tidy up your whole house and reorganise everything and you bin everything. <laughs> and then you might take a holiday, you might see the grandchildren, you kind of finish off that stage of your life and then quite often they go and get a second job and they're helped into second jobs but they're not kind of high pad um really intense jobs what you tend to do quite often is they'll go and drive a train or they'll go and they do all sorts of things and you know be a gardener or go yeah. back into teaching and and they're really helped and supported to do that and you do it for a couple of days a week and everyone ends up wanting to do that so it's quite it's quite sort of you know it's very social for them and there's normally quite a lot of activity and they feel they're getting out of the house. But the death cleaning is basically clearing out so your kids don't have to. Yes, yeah, so then, then you're doing all that so they don't have to. So by, by doing all that in a way, you're setting yourself up for the next 20, 30 years. And if you're going to live to 100, that is quite a sensible idea. Do you want to tell on that one? Yeah, I do. I mean, I was, we were, Alice and I were talking before we came on about our, par our parents, what we inherited. I mean, that generation, our parents, they, they had more stuff than yeah, yeah. anybody ever had before or will ever have again just physical stuff because they had them they had the money for it yeah but they but things hadn't been digitized so they had they lived their lives on paper cuttings and, and cuttings and books and, and, bank statements and, and record, yeah, yeah, yeah. records and and yeah, actual yeah. books and all uh and all the rest of it and it it was a burden that's in fact it, 
five years after my mum's death, it's kind of still going on. I'm yeah. still going going through stuff. Yeah. I haven't got rid of most of it. And my, uh, I think I wouldn't wish to inflict that on my own children. I think we've got less stuff to start with. You need to start looking at those big books. You need to start looking at those big books. And uh, also, I think it's just good mentally because it's sort of mm. it's like you know that's gone yeah. and you stuff basically stuff can weigh you down, can't yeah, it? Yeah, it yeah. can. It really. But also, can you can't you believe how much there is. So mine was the yeah. my. my my mum kept everything, which in a way was really lovely, and it was all your sort of old cuttings and things. But then, mm. when you saw the driving lesson receipts, you were thinking, "My yeah. God, <laughs> that is extraordinary!" Yeah, that she yeah. can't have thrown a single piece of paper. But away. also, She's... as well as having so much stuff, you know, sort of the, particularly the sort of boomer generation had yeah. like space. You know, if you had space. a family house, yeah. and then the kids move out. You've got the space. You know why? Yeah. We found exactly the same thing with my mother in law. Yeah. She had just had I, the space. Meant, so why? Yeah. Sure. In the attic, didn't the cupboard they? Was never full, so you could keep going. No. Shortly before my mum died, I think I got persuaded to get rid of about hundred empty yogurt. Pots, which she would, she was eventually persuaded to do, and then she said, "But you'd have been no good in the war, would you?" Because <laughs> I was suggesting that you know these yogurt pots. Go. So once you've done your death cleaning and you've had to sort out, what about taking a gap year, but not when you're 18? Tessa Murray did uh, exactly that, and uh, Joseph. Now, hi, Tessa. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? I'm very good. I'm very good. So when did how? how if you don't mind me asking, how old were you when you took your midlife gap year? Well. I was 51 when I started and I was 52 when I finished. And so why do it then? Rather than doing it sort of, you know, between, you know, A-levels in university or, or whatever, why why do it when you were 51? Well, I did do it 33 years oh. ago. Um, and I thought... What, long holiday for you, Tess? Did you, did you do anything in between? Well, a mere 33 <laughs> years of working, Matt. Yeah, no, I, I did. And a couple of kids. Um, no, I chose this time to take... Um, a bit of time off. But I, I'd, um, I've got two daughters, they're 19 and 20. They'd both either gone off travelling to university. I'd sort of got divorced five years ago. I'd done sort of, you know, 21 years of working with kids, you know, having kids um, or working with kids. I did work in the media. You make your own mind up. Um, <laughs> and um, <laughs> Anyway, I had the chance. This window of opportunity came up and I thought, you know what, if not now, when? And... You know, without getting into Mariella's territory of women of a certain age, but you do get to a sort of certain age and you want to decide how you're going to live the second half of your life. Um, and having some time out to think about that, to um, sort of do a bit of assessment of life today and, and what you've enjoyed, what you really want to do more of. And giving myself the sort of, I, I described it as a gift. I mean, it really was the best present I've ever given myself. Yeah. So did, um, you, did you actually travel? Where did you go? Well, I did. I went on this flurry of travelling to um, nice. sort of, you know, Vietnam. I was, I, I go to New York, so one of my kids was there quite a lot. You know, I was in Turkey, I was in Ibiza, which nearly bloody killed me. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, and then I realised what I really wanted to do was just stay at home for the summer. Actually, it wasn't the travelling that was the sort of um, the thing that appealed the most. It was actually time. And that yeah. time I really wanted to spend with people I love, my family, you know, catch up with old friends, do all the things that when you're working full time and you've got kids, you just don't have the luxury to be able to sort of do as much of as you'd like to. So actually it was ironic that this sort of thing, and I wrote this blimmin' piece for the Sunday Times travel section about it, and of course went off on these holidays and thought, actually, I don't really want to travel, I just want to stay home. <laughs> well, get my sweet peas in on time what, what this year. What would you year. do, uh, Robert, if you had a gap Yeah. Well, apart from Barrow's two old cuttings books. Yeah. <laughs> Just through them. Yeah, I like the idea of staying at home. I mean, everyone thought, I always thought gap year, I wouldn't, you know, heading off to, I mean, to Asia or whatever. I don't particularly want to do that. I'd, 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 there's some European cities that I'd want to go to. Yeah. But I like the idea of 
doing stuff at home and uh, yeah, just seeing friends and chilling out. Pottering. Pottering. Yeah. Yeah, I think the death cleaning now, I quite like to just yeah. organise my yeah. entire life just for a bit because it's so disorganised. It would be really. We, did, we, we got good. our loft boarded. Oh, that oh, yeah. was good. Yeah. Because uh, we got everything out of the loft and we went through everything and put it Ooh. back. I mean, a lot oh, of the stuff nice. we just put back, we should probably should have thrown yeah. away. But yeah. Yeah. yeah, I haven't been through ours for about 10 years. God. Yeah. It's just... very therapeutic getting rid of stuff. Get, get really your loft board and just sit yeah. at home. Lovely. Robert Crams and Alice Thompson, you can read them both in The Times every week. Of course, just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. And if you've already got yourself a subscription, thank you for that because, you, you know, it's thanks to people paying for The Times that you end up with amazing investigations like all the Russell Brand stuff over the last few days because all that sort of journalism costs money. Right, coming up next, it's PM. Cues. We're talking about politics. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Yeah, so Parliament is in recess. They're in conference recess for reasons we can't get into because there is no conference this week. But it means there's no PMQ's either. So instead, we are bringing you PMQ's questions in the afternoon with Times Radio's political editor, Kate Buchan. Hello, Kate. Hello. And... Breathlessly joining us, <laughs> quite literally, with with a with a week's notice, he's made it just in time. Time for his senior political correspondent, Patrick Guy is here. Hello, you alright? I'm I'm very well. Good. I added a needless amount of time trying to get a diet coke from the machine, right? Which isn't connecting to the card network, so right. I only have myself to blame. You've only got yourself to blame. You're here now, anyway, which is very important. So uh, the idea is, you come on and ask us questions, and we'll try to explain what's going on in politics. And Paul is on the line. Hello, Paul. Hi there. Uh, so, Paul, what's your question for PMQs? My question is, have any of the four main UK parties costed their net zero plans? And there may be a follow-up, but I doubt it, which is, if so, how do they differ? <laughs> right. Uh, Patrick, do you want to take that one? Well, look, the, the Labour Party have costed it insofar as they know they want to spend £28 billion by the end of the Parliament on... Uh, green investments. Now, that position has been revised from spending £28 a year every year on green investments, you know, insulating homes, building wind farms, etc., etc. The one thing I haven't seen costings for is the more contentious part of Labour's net zero plans, which is to decarbonise the electricity grid entirely, i.e., you know, all clean energy by 2030. And Gary Smith, who's the General Secretary of the GMB Union, who represent lots of people in the oil and gas and electricity sectors, reckons that's impossible. So, yes, Labour have put a price tag on their net zero plans, but it remains to be seen how realistic that is, whether they can even, what they're going to spend that money on. And two, the associated costs are still unclear as well. 
And Kate, as we sit here right now, it's not clear that <laughs> Rishi Sunak even knows what his net zero plans are. Now, yeah. never mind how much they're going to cost. I feel like I've got the short straw here. Um, just on, uh, <laughs> it's worth adding on Labour. Actually, the IFS, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, did actually do have a have a bit of a deep dive into Labour's commitments on net zero and the financial implications of them. And they sort of unpicked this £28 billion figure and suggested £8 billion of it is actually government funding that's already been committed, which they are sort of adding to their total. So £20 billion would maybe be new. And of that £20 billion, the IFS concludes that it, it really wouldn't actually be enough to meet some of the things, some of the targets and, and the ambition that the country yeah. really needs to go forward. So while it sounds like a huge figure, and it is a big number... It's not necessarily as straightforward as we think it is. To meet this ultimate target of net zero by 2050. So um, where, as we stand right now, awaiting, you know, Rishi Sunak speaking mm. later, what's going on? <laughs> well, I think that's probably a question that a lot, in, lot of uh, <laughs> members of the Cabinet are asking the Prime Minister at this present moment in time. Look, I think the, the Tory government is not going to change its commitment to the legal... Uh, status of 2050, you know, net zero by 2050. But what Rishi Sunak is altering is the direction of travel, the way we get there. He's trying to smooth off some of the rough edges as he sees them. And part of the reason for doing that is because, you know, people do want to have their cake and eat it. They do like the idea of net zero, but they don't like the idea of costs. And look, we're looking very firmly now at a general election coming down the track fairly soon. So that's why this messaging is important. So what are they looking at in Cabinet right now? Well, potentially relaxing targets for replacing boilers, uh, changing the uh, the cut-off point, if you like, for new oil and uh, petrol and diesel cars back to 2035, and maybe changing energy regulations on homes and for landlords. Now, that would be a fairly significant thing to do. Some in the sector warn it would actually mean higher bills, but it might not mean as big upfront costs for landlords. And maybe some smaller things like... No new taxes on flying. There's some discussion about bins, for example. Uh, uh, yeah, public commitment that you wouldn't have to have seven, seven bins. bins. Yeah, I mean, you can have seven bins if you want. Yeah. How many bins do you have in your house, Matt, right now? Uh, two. You only have two bins? Black bin, blue bin. Black bin, blue bin, green bin. No, but in your house yeah, in you have... In the house, yeah, two. Oh, I've got four bins. No, now. just normal Inside black Inside your house? Five bins, actually, yeah. Five wow. bins. Yeah. I've got a bin with two compartments, but I'm pretty... Um, yeah, but do you not have a bathroom bin? Oh, oh, I've got a sorry, bathroom I thought bin. And a bin meant, in my bedroom. I'm so, I thought it was yeah, a meaning, bedroom bin. I thought you were yeah. meaning types of bins. I, not, I'm being facetious, yeah. 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 Well, the, ba the bathroom bin is one of the big problems with... Because most of it could be recycled, but people don't recycle the bathroom business. Because it all just gets well, chucked in all your plastic. Don't recycle your bathroom business. No, that's not recyclable. That is also not one of the seven bins. Sorry, we've got quite a long way from Paul's question. <laughs> Paul, I think the upshot of that is Labour did cost it and everyone went, how much? And then they rode back from it. And so as a result, no one else has done it. I don't know about the SNP and the Lib Dems. It's great. We'll yeah, find sure. out in Bournemouth next week. We'll find out in Bournemouth next week. Exactly. Uh, thanks for that, Paul. Nice to speak to you. Uh, right, let's. We've got an email now from Catherine Collins. She says, with conference season coming up, as Patrick was saying, we were live at the Lib Dems uh, uh, next week. She said, I'd like, like to know more about political speeches. How does the PM or candidate choose their speechwriter? What background do the writers usually have? How do they make sure they sound like the person they're writing for? When a speech lands flat, is the writer to blame or the person? And delivering it. Well, Patrick. Look, the prime <laughs> example of uh, someone delivering a line that falls flat, and I think answers the second part of that question, is you remember Jeremy Corbyn's first ever conference speech, oh, no. which he read off an auto cue, which included the line, which, no one was sure whether it was a stage direction or a line, where he read Strong message here. Strong message here. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you look at Liz Truss's speech earlier in the week. And that was someone defending their own record who was speaking as if she'd never seen the text in front of her before. Yeah. So I think those are two fairly good examples that prove that 
you know, more often than not, it is the fault of the speaker if it falls flat. I mean, as for the process and as for picking speechwriters, I mean, to return to the Labour Party, Keir Starmer has you know, two speechwriters uh, in Alan Lockie and Paul Ovenden, who between them write most of uh, Keir Starmer's speeches from very different backgrounds. Paul Ovenden's a former journalist. Uh, Alan Lockie used to work for Tristram Hunt uh, and at the RSA think tank. And between, you know, but, but those are two people who spend a lot of time with Keir Starmer, who've read basically everything Keir Starmer's written, who can really feel like, you know, basically you have to know your principal really well and inhabit their voice. Yeah. Actually, the thing we saw this week, um, uh, Kate, in the, was it Ben Riley Smith's book about the thirteen years of Tory rule? He'd got hold of a sort of transcript of Liz Truss, sort of doing the early stages of her party conference speech. It was, bit, it was quite sweary about the BBC, mm. but that was obviously an exercise in just stand up and say the stuff that you think that you want to say to try and capture a bit of. To refine it. Well, yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the key to a really good relationship between a politician and a speechwriter is exactly as Patrick says, the ability to know what the person is trying to say yeah. and trying to evoke, even if they can't necessarily get there themselves, is actually a real art. And I think in America, it's a much more, it's almost a more respected mm. profession than it is in this country. We, we know, I mean, there are lots of people behind the scenes who do work on political speeches in UK politics, but they're not always as visible yeah. or potentially as sort of famous. I think, you know, there have been some really good examples of where speeches have gone wrong. And Theresa May's conference speech was quite an interesting one because obviously lots of external things went wrong. Yeah, here. the letters fell off the board. But there were some jokes in there. And she had a very dry... And in fact, that was it was her most personal speech yet, which is always a terrifying prospect for someone. <laughs> the pre-brief, the most personal. But there was lots of personal stuff in there about, I think, not being able to have children. Yes, yeah. and yeah. But it all got overshadowed because of the cough. It did, but actually, when you look back on it, it wasn't a bad speech. Yeah. It was her being herself completely. Mm. And loads of people did criticise the fact that she just, they don't think she was very good. But when you're true to your own personality, speeches can be very good it's when politicians try to speak in a way that is not natural to them or say things actually that they don't really believe yeah. when it doesn't quite chime and if, actually the other thing patrick is that the party conference speech is probably because it's a big moment in the year particularly this one potentially ahead of a general election uh you know the last they, they're the, probably the most authentic because they will really be worked on the lead will be very involved in it uh, there'll be a lot of both personal speech yet, what do you really want to say, lots of rehearsals and that sort of thing. Um, so you will get quite an authentic voice. It's the the fact that politicians, party leaders, make speeches all the time. They don't have time to have all that input. Well, the, so job, the voice... job of a speechwriter, basically, most of the time is, you know, uh, Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer is doing five minutes at the Diabetes UK gala dinner. You've got to write something for that, yeah. right? Actually, the, you know, the keynotes take longest. For instance... You know, the both sets of speechwriters would have been right, working all summer on yeah. the bones of the conference speech, and you know everybody will be chipping in who works uh, in those leaders in the circles. But you know, as you say, it's um, you know, so many speeches given, they don't have time to be in across fact, them. Boris, well, Boris Johnson was the most obvious example of that, where you could really tell the ones that he'd written himself, which were all full of the colourful language and, and stuff. And then sometimes he'd give a speech which had 
read, you know, it was like an AI bot because it, it was the civil service machine yeah. that just. But then he used to add to it. That was always the Peppa problem. Pig world, yes, he used to. He used to add to it <laughs> midway through those speeches, yeah, yeah. so you still got a flavour. But you could see that when they were press released. You know, you look at Boris Johnson's speech from the steps that yeah. Number Ten gave. It's written in a sort of stream of consciousness, yeah, yeah. really lightly punctuated, e coming style. Well, there we are. I hope that helped, uh, Catherine. We'll keep across some... Um, well, you're going to be hearing a lot of speeches over the next three weeks, so that's something to look forward to. Uh, right, David's on the line. Hi, David. Hello. Uh, what's your question for us? I was just um, interested to uh, hear your thoughts on uh, why you think Rishi Sunak seems to be a divisive figure, sort of stoking cultural wars at the beck and call of the right wing of the Conservative Party, rather than trying to, you know, move towards the centre and uh, sort of be... Uh, consensual, competent, and uh, try and convert the uh, the sort of the the sort of the Starmer voters who don't seem to be that convinced. It's not uh, it's sort of stoking cultural issues doesn't seem to me to be uh, the best way to try and actually win the next election. Or is he? Uh, so what, what's he up to? I'm just a bit confused from Sterling. I think there are two questions, two parts to that question. The first one is what is he up to in terms of the culture wars? We can come back to that. And the second one is about why is Rishi Sunak a divisive figure? I think the reality is that actually Rishi Sunak is probably further to the right than most people actually give him credit for as a politician. And that the reason why we don't talk about that or think of him like that is partly because he's actually still quite new in terms of, well, as prime minister, but also as a politician at the forefront of most of our minds. He has views which don't necessarily sit in the centre ground or to the left of his party. They sit in a different place, but people have sort of put him in the wrong box, if you like, so far. Which leads you to the question about culture wars, and that's much more, when you think about election planning, that's much more about appealing to a certain constituency of voters. And I think, actually, that's at the heart of where he's becoming unstuck with this net zero policy, because... There are lots of MPs in Rishi Sunak's party right now who are surprised, who are frustrated, who didn't almost didn't see this coming. But there will be some who say, well, yeah, we kind of did because this is what he thinks. It's the difference between what he projects and what people think he wants to do and what the reality is of the things that he actually believes in. And that's the gulf. And unfortunately, that comes down to credibility and you need time to show people who you really are, which might be what we're starting to see ahead of a general election. There's a little bit um, as well, Patrick, I wonder whether... When he was the chancellor to Boris Johnson and people thought Boris Johnson was wild and out of control and a bit culture warry and Brexity, and Rishi Sunak was the sort of the younger, smarter, nicer guy who paid for your eat out to help out lunch, and they sort of assumed, you know, with the people who really hated Boris Johnson decided they preferred Rishi Sunak, but then were quite surprised to discover that actually his politics is probably to the right of Boris Johnson. Well, look, as Kate was saying, the great irony about Rishi Sunak is that his introduction to the country, i.e. that press conference where he said, don't worry, we're going to pay your wages indefinitely, <laughs> was a policy that, for his friends say, literally kept him up at night. He was worrying about inflation and interest on government borrowing way, way before anybody was really talking about it in the mainstream. So that's the great irony. Yeah. The other thing is, Rishi Sunak made a strategic calculation when he became Tory leader and this is what really confuses people in the Labour Party, they were worried that Rishi Sunak would define himself quite aggressively against what had come before, against Liz Truss and Boris Johnson. And there was a little glimpse of that in his first speech when he said mistakes were made. But that seemed to be the limit of how far he was willing to go in criticising his predecessors and has made the calculation that it's actually better to have the right of the Tory party in the tent. Um, but that has its limitations in that you can't... And in fact, as we've seen this week, you know, Liz Trust 
takes a pop at net zero on Monday, and by Wednesday, Rishi Sunak's making an emergency press conference to to basically do exactly what she said. Well, it's kind of going back to the speechwriting point, isn't it? It's about being genuine, and it's about people understanding who you are, what you stand for, and then you following through on that. And if you if you don't get ahead of that narrative, and if you can't project that, then people don't really know what you think, yeah, and yeah. they start to put that onto you. And that's what's happening with Liz Truss, with the idea that Liz Truss has forced Rishi Sunak's hand. That isn't what's happened here, mm. but that is what people are starting to say, and that's a fault of probably the way this is communicated. And obviously with a leak, it's always difficult. Yeah, it's always but... difficult as well. But it'll be interesting to see the next time uh, Rishi Sunak tries to accuse Keir Starmer of being Mr Flip Flop. Uh, right, I think we've got Phil on the line. Phil, are you there? Good afternoon. Uh, Phil, what do you want to ask us? All right, nice easy one for you. We know our politics is maddening, interesting and unpredictable shape opera, full of wacky characters, but what one thing would you change about politics to improve it? And a follow-up, if I may... Yeah, because that would be easy to answer that one in two minutes, Phil, so go on. <laughs> well, you know, challenge. A uh, follow-up, uh, which political journalist would you most like to be interviewed by? Wow, oh, that is a good That's question. A really so, good. one, one, what one thing would you do to improve our politics, and which political journalist are you most likely to be interviewed by? Wow. Yeah. Uh, Patrick, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'd we'll do, say we'll do politics first. We'll do interviews after. So, I would the one thing I think would drastically improve the quality of our politics is I would ban phones and tablets from the Commons Chamber. Now, look, when I'm in the gallery, I'm not going to pretend I am. <laughs> gripped by every backbench speech, but there is something really depressing about what looking down from the press gallery in the House of Commons and seeing bank after bank of MP just absorbed by Twitter, their emails or whatever. And also, it means that now you have people reading, reading, not giving, speeches off their iPads and in some cases their phones, which I think just sort of cheapens the discourse. You know, if they can't concentrate on Commons debates, no one, no wonder our legislation is so badly draft, drafted and the state of our debate so terrible. So I, I would um, ban that. I was in the press gallery the other day and I saw an MP as I was looking over the side playing a Sims-like game, <laughs> <laughs> a city-building game, which right. is quite depressing. I would like that to see... That would have been a huge story watch. Remember there was somebody playing Candy Crush in a select Yeah, committee. Nigel Mills. Yeah, yeah. went yeah. on for days. I mean, it was similar to that yeah, situation, yeah. but yeah. yeah. Uh, mine is a bit... Maybe it's a bit optimistic. I would like to see more cross-party working. And by that, I mean, we have some huge intractable problems in this country, social care being one of them, but there are many. I would like to see, a bit like what William Hague said the other day in his brilliant column on pensions, he was given political space in the 90s to make changes to pension, the pension age. And really, he was saying the only way he could make those changes, because they were controversial, was because he, he had that space. Yeah, he was yeah. given that opportunity by Labour. I would like to see more of that. I would yeah. like to see the parties accept that where there are problems that need both of them to work together for the good of the country, that we should be applauding that and not trying to, you know, drive coach and horses through it. Well, there we are. That's good. I was going to suggest, I think there should be one designated person in the lobby who's allowed to tweet each day <laughs> uh, and stop uh, everyone what, like tweet breathlessly tweeting yeah, exactly. the same thing <laughs> all the time. That would be my thing. I think part of the reason why politics feels mad is because everyone sort of outmad each other by basically saying the same thing over. We've even seen it today. You know, you can just walk away from your phone at that point. 
Well, you know what? You can just put your phone down. All oh, right, you can be the Twitter, Twitter monitor, Kate. I'll be. Tw- I Only was, Kate I was is supposed to copying monitor at school. Does that surprise this you? This does not surprise no. me. Uh, right, finally, who do you want to be interviewed by, Patrick? I would like a three-part series on my life by Michael Cockrell. Oh, oh, of course, not too vain. Of course, you too. God, that is a. I was thinking, that's like, who would do answer. a quick five-minute hit outside Millbank with you? I mean, I was, for a who would you most series? like to be interviewed by? You want? You know, that's like, a difficult question for two. Who's the total pushover? I mean, I'm going to say Mariella because I just talk over. Oh, Matt. I mean, I'm going to stick up for Mariella here. Yeah, I think she'd give Neil. you a run for your money. Oh, no, oh, okay. I think Mariella would give you a very yeah, fair run true. for your money as an interview. So, then answer the question. I. It would be someone like. It would be someone like Andrew Neil. It would be somebody. Somebody who you knew would give you a run yeah, for your yeah. money. And as I'd go the opposite. Toes. I'd go David Frost. Run you a warm bath. Nice soft cushions. You want to get in the bath with David Frost? Yeah, the uh, David Frost, the TV interviewer, not the... <laughs> not the... Not Lord Frost of Amundsen. Yeah. that very good. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. If you've got any questions yourself that you want to put to us or you want us to try and answer over the coming days here on the podcast, just email me, matt at times.red, and we'll do our best. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it is goodbye.